Hi, welcome to the premiere of the second season of the Heresy is Good podcast. My name is Teddy Lee Brown, and I am a heretic. Before I start talking about what we'll be discussing during the second season of this podcast, I'd like to do a recap of season one to bring us up to date. I began season one by explaining why I believed that heresy is good. Heresy being defined as a belief or opinion contrary to orthodox religious doctrine. And I talked about a time when orthodox religious authorities forced submission to their doctrines through the use of torture and murder in the name of Jesus Christ. Anyone who believed anything but their dogma would immediately be labeled a heretic and treated accordingly, century after century. Such tactics allowed the Church of Rome to rule over the Western Christian world with an iron fist for a thousand years, until they were challenged by the rise of the Protestants and the inevitable Christian civil war that would follow that went on and on for centuries. Each convinced the other were heretics and blasphemers doing the devil's work. But presently, because they've become political allies, everyone else but them are the heretics. I reminded modern evangelicals of their Protestant roots, how they had descended from a long line of heretics, many of whom were tortured and killed in their quest for the most basic of religious freedoms, and reminded them how they had rebelled against the self-proclaimed one true Christian church and demanded to be allowed to practice their faith as they saw fit. That they proclaimed that they didn't need an institution to tell them how to interpret the Bible and what to believe about God. That they, not the church, were the authors of their faith and salvation and that no one had the right to interfere with their personal relationship with God. No mediator, no middleman was desirable or necessary, period. I then went on and asked evangelicals how they become the modern-day equivalent of the oppressors of their ancestors. With their Protestant history, why do they lack the self-awareness to understand why people presently resist their dogma like they, to this day, resist the dogma of the one true Christian church? Don't the rest of us deserve the same right? I would go on to argue that religious orthodoxy has always been a, if not the primary problem, 
with religion that Jesus' most dangerous adversaries were the orthodox religious leaders of his day. They threw scripture at him like they were trying to stone him to death with it. They seized upon every perceived slight of the law to accuse him of blasphemy. They used scripture to try and convict the man Christians believe was an incarnation of God for being disrespectful of God, when what he was truly guilty of was heresy, a word that wouldn't be invented for a couple hundred years. Jesus did not and would not play by their rules, and many of them hated and rejected him for it. But to be fair, Jesus wasn't a big fan of theirs either. His public confrontation and condemnation of them in the temple in Jerusalem helped set his crucifixion in motion. The high priests, who considered themselves the experts on scripture, and the guardians of orthodoxy and all that is godly, felt they had all the proof they needed in scripture to prove Jesus was a fraud and an enemy of the faith, which conveniently allowed them to rationalize and justify their involvement in Jesus' death. In later episodes, I discussed how the dynamics surrounding Christ's crucifixion would be recapitulated and acted out over and over again in the centuries and millennia following his death. In the place of Christ, heretics and innocents were tortured and murdered for their imagined crimes against God as defined by the zealous orthodox religious leaders of their time. People were often murdered by horrendous means in the public square as an example for everyone else for such ungodly crimes like teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in their native tongue or translating Bible texts into languages which allowed people to read the Bible for themselves instead of being dependent on clergy with an agenda. Crimes which, like many others at the time, are not now, nor should they have ever been, capital offenses in the name of Christ. The victims throughout the centuries had a lot more in common with Jesus than their revered religious leaders, men who spent their lives stalking humanity for the devil when the devil was inside of them all along. During the second season of this podcast, I hope to get to the bottom of some of that. In the episodes entitled On Why Evangelicals Are Stuck in a First Century Time Loop and why didn't Jesus write a book? 
I explored the origins and history of the New Testament and the modern evangelicals' relationship with it, about how naive they are and how little they know about it despite their reverence for it and their study and memorization of it. In their eyes, it's unerring and perfect, straight from God's lips to the page. But that is simply not true. Man's fingerprints are all over the New Testament. As a history book, flaws, mistakes, misinformation are common throughout its entirety. Present-day evangelicals won't accept that their first-century predecessors were as human and fallible as they are, that they made mistakes and were just flat-out wrong about some of the assumptions they made and passed on in the name of faith. And to not recognize that is to keep making the same mistake and misinforming others in the name of Christ. For example, the predicted return of Jesus Christ. I discussed how first century Christians were taught and believed that Jesus would return and establish God's kingdom in their lifetimes. That he would come back and fulfill the yet unfulfilled Hebrew prophecies, overthrowing of Rome, raising the dead, and prove to the world that he was the Messiah. With one foot clearly planted in older pre-existing Judaic prophecies, they believed the job had been only half done, but would be completed upon Jesus' return. Non-believing Jews pointed at the unfulfilled prophecies to argue that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and that his followers were misguided or worse. Believers were certain that Jesus was going to return any second to prove them right and that all non-believers would be converted and God's kingdom established on earth before their very eyes. They had no thought or concept that it would not happen in their lifetimes and planned accordingly. When Jesus hadn't returned as anticipated and the first generation of believers started passing away, followers became very concerned about their fate if Jesus didn't happen to return before they died. When they expressed their concern to the Apostle Paul, whose influence on developing Christian theology was second to none, he dismissed them as inappropriate. He reassured them that Jesus' return was imminent and that if any more followers died beforehand, Jesus would resurrect them right then and there upon his return and they'd be standing side by side with their living friends and family in God's kingdom. The devout, scholarly Paul reassured them 
that unfulfilled prophecies were being fulfilled as they spoke. That the Antichrist existed and was holed up in the temple in Jerusalem, waiting to spring into action, igniting the war between good and evil, which Jesus would win, and then their faith would be fulfilled. That didn't happen. If Paul was the prophet some credit him to be, he would have prophesied, Relax, folks. Unpack your bags and live your life. Jesus won't be back for at least another 2,000 years. He could have saved a lot of people from the grief and heartbreak over the centuries, if he had. Now, as strange as this might sound to some people, I don't blame God or Jesus for that. That was the handiwork of man. Of course, some of you are saying, wait just a minute. Didn't Jesus predict his imminent return and ultimate victory repeatedly in all of the Gospels? To which I reply, did he? Did he really? How would we know that for sure? Because he's quoted as saying so? Even the church leaders whom structured and canonized the New Testament in the 4th century didn't believe everything attributed to Jesus was actually said by Jesus. They rejected the vast majority of the wide array of Gospels available at the time, despite them being chock full of what Jesus was reported to have said and done. Church leaders considered those Gospels as fanciful and irrelevant and banned them entirely. Of the four Gospels they chose, the second two were copied from the first with a few changes here and there, and especially at the end. The last, the Gospel according to John, was written a hundred years after Jesus' death, and it contains attributions and prophetic utterances not found in the other three, and nobody can explain how or why it took 100 years for them to surface. No matter whether Jesus said or done those things or not. Just how much one believes about those words and actions attributed to Jesus concerning his resurrection and second coming may depend on just how dumb you thought his disciples were. When reading the various canonized Gospels, written between 40 and 100 years after his death, by authors who never met him, you're led to believe that Jesus shared everything that was going to happen with his disciples, including his death, resurrection, and second coming. If so, why were his disciples so shocked, confused, horrified, and devastated by his supposed predictions coming true? In the book of Acts, 
Our only account of disciples' behavior shortly after Christ's death, the disciples are portrayed as completely lost, clueless, and deeply traumatized by his death, and trying to figure out what it all means. It certainly appeared things definitely didn't go the way they thought it would. Even news of Jesus' reported resurrection was met with disbelief until Jesus reportedly personally appeared before them to prove it was true. Now, were the disciples forgetful dolts who forgot everything Jesus taught them? Or were they caught by surprise because some of what was reported in hindsight to have been said to them in the Gospels was never said? Some of us will always be left wondering how the Gospels would have read if written by his disciples shortly after his death and long before others got the chance to embellish their versions in the name of encouraging the faithful. In the end, somebody got it wrong, and I don't think it was Jesus. The original book of Mark, written 40 years after Jesus' death, did not report any post-resurrection events whatsoever. Instead, it ended outside of an empty tomb. What was changed later to support what was written in the Gospels that were to follow. Personally, it would make a difference to me if all the post-resurrection stories were untrue. It would not change the real things Jesus said, did, and accomplished. If followed properly, the spiritual path he laid out is second to none. And even if Jesus' bones are still lying in some unknown tomb, I know from personal experience that he's alive and well. But according to orthodoxy, if I base my belief on anything other than the post-resurrection narratives, I'm a heretic. Before we move on, let's go back to the Apostle Paul for a minute. Don't get me wrong, I have tremendous respect for Paul. No one did more for the concept of grace than Paul. Though not considered so by most, Paul was a heretic. He single-handedly led a movement that rejected the old ways of believing, including blind obedience to the law. But he famously was the first to admit that he was far from perfect or all-knowing. And, of course, he had no idea that his personal letters would be canonized as part of the New Testament hundreds of years after his death, nor the damage they could do. Struggling to convince his fellow Jews that Jesus was the long-prophesied Messiah, Paul a scholar and former Pharisee, insisted that Jesus would fulfill the necessary ancient Hebrew prophecies to prove himself and assumed 
it would happen right away, just the way he, Paul, imagined it would, and he was absolutely wrong. He, like all of us, have no direct line to Christ, or was he informed exactly what was going to happen, no matter how devout he was? Certainly, he presently has recognized his mistakes and regrets that so many others continue to believe the same thing. If Jesus' primary purpose was to establish his kingdom on earth, why didn't he do it then? Why would he tell people he was about to and then disappear for two millennia? During the second season of this podcast, we will further explore the damage embellishment has done and how it has spiritually developmentally impaired those who have been taken in by it and what, if anything, can be done about it. In the first season of Heresy is Good, I did some podcasts on well-known evangelical celebrities like the Reverend Ernest Angeli and his obvious long-standing mental health issues, not the least of which was the consequences of him wrongfully repressing and redirecting his homosexuality. The man was a victim of his culture and became a severely damaged and deeply disturbed human being, who, in turn, traumatized and damaged others in the name of faith. His dysfunction behind the pulpit was obvious to everyone who wasn't drinking his personal brand of Kool-Aid. But yet, other evangelical leaders who spend their lives criticizing and judging the world for every perceived slight of Christianity turned a blind eye and said nothing about Angeli's delusions and what he was claiming to do and be in the name of Jesus Christ. Shortly before his death, at the age of 99, Angeli assured his audience that the second coming of Christ would happen in his lifetime and that he, Angeli, was the most important figure in Christian history since Jesus and that he would be leading the way during the second coming, side by side with Christ. His death shortly thereafter proved he was just another self-important, deluded fool, dragging Jesus' name through the mud in the name of faith healing, while stealing from the poor and infirmed. In the upcoming second season, I will continue to hold the evangelical right accountable for their hypocrisy of policing everyone else but their own. Speaking of being held accountable, I did a podcast on Jerry Falwell and his wife Becky finally being held accountable. Not by their own, of course, at least not at first. It took a disgruntled ex-lover to tear down their facade and expose their hypocrisy. Jerry helped, though, 
He posted a pic of himself on the internet with his pants undone and an alcoholic drink at his hand. It was a masterful self-portrait, topped off with his drunken radio interview insisting on his innocence. We'd find out that such behavior was the norm for many years for the man who headed the largest Christian college in the world. Everyone around him and his wife knew it, but said or did nothing, while insisting that the rest of the world lived by the standards that even their most faithful leaders couldn't meet. When the good folks from Liberty University finally turned on Jerry and his wife, Becky, Jerry mocked them by accusing them of being self-righteous hypocrites and guilty of much worse. He certainly didn't take to being poked with a holier-than-thou stick that he and his friends have been trying to impale everyone else with over the years. Certainly, there are others to follow. Stay tuned and hear all about it and during the second season of this podcast. Last season, I did two episodes on the election and how Pat Robertson's involvement in it exemplified everything that's gone wrong with the Christian rights involvement in politics, especially their rabid, unwavering support and belief in Donald Trump and the subsequent big lie. I demanded that Pat Robinson retire, and he did, but not for the right reasons. I discussed how I believed that Trump's attempt to steal the election would be dependent on the zealousness of his right-wing evangelical supporters. They and their white nationalist allies gave it their best effort on January 6, 2021, and almost pulled it off. I always knew Trump's evangelical supporters weren't just going to go away, but I, like many, crossed my fingers and hoped that after Joe Biden was sworn in as president, that Donald Trump would slowly but surely begin to fade away. That he had botched things so badly that their disillusionment would redirect them to a new political idol cut from the same cloth. Instead, they clung to him like he was an incarnation of the Lord himself. Their faith is in Trump. And to hell with that turn-the-other-cheek stuff. To hell with everybody else. They want what they want and are entitled to take it any way necessary. In the new season... I hope to be doing a podcast or two about Trump and his evangelical enablers being brought to justice. One of the few good things resulting from the attempted insurrection on January 6th is it exposed a lot of people for who they really are. The people involved who saw themselves as God's elite literally demonstrated their gullibility and willingness to believe anything supportive of their pre-existing self-righteousness and prejudices. Without a Bible in their hand, 
they're just another white nationalist. With a Bible in their hand, they're supposed to be God's chosen people, immune from criticism because they are rightfully practicing the Christian faith. To speak against them is to speak against Jesus Christ. And we are supposed to believe that they are the ones who have the revelatory insight into scripture thousands of years old that qualifies them to lead the rest of us to the promised land when they can't even see through Donald Trump's bullshit. Trump was a test of their spiritual sanity and they failed miserably. They have become cultists and they have to be judged and dealt with accordingly for their sake and ours. I look forward to continuing documenting their well-deserved implosion under the weight of their own corruption. I closed out the first season with a three-parter on the most influential evangelist in American history, the Reverend Billy Graham. I, like a lot of his critics, liked Billy despite his flaws. We admired that he learned from his mistakes with politics and distanced himself from the likes of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. Graham made some horrific mistakes, but he sincerely did the best he could do. But we will always have to wonder what he would have been capable of if his mind hadn't been chained by that old-time orthodoxy. Those of you who have listened to the trailer for the second season already know that I plan on discussing many other topics in season two. I'll be discussing the science versus religion wars and the effect that they've had on each other. We will be philosophically exploring models of consciousness and what can and cannot be known. We will also be having much more inclusive conversations about spirituality and how there is certainly more than one path. Last but not least, we will explore what has been gleaned from the last 60 years of psychedelic research and what it can teach us all. My name is Ted Lee Brown, and I'm proud to be a heretic, and so should you. Check out our page on Patreon, folks, or donate directly at heresyisgood.com. Until next time, be the best heretic you can be.